translations there. But just to get us a sense of the book, you'd be amazed at how just sitting down and reading it in one sitting, you can kind of see the flow of it. Okay? Uh, so do that. When you're getting ready to study a book, if it's Genesis, let's use Genesis, for example, the same thing. You know, it seems like a long book, 50 chapters, but you would be amazed in a translation like this. You can click off nine or ten chapters, and you stop, and you're like, oh my goodness, I just read, read nine or ten chapters. You'd, you'd be amazed how quickly it goes. And then maybe do that for three or four days, and then for the rest of the week, uh, go back through those same chapters again with one of these other type translations and start making notes on the individual pieces of the text, the who, what, when, where. Uh, so, you know, just that overall cursory reading first and just understanding the big flow of it. And then going back through those very same chapters again with more of a word-for-word -word translation and picking out the individual parts. Uh, and, you know, I know on the, the, the first night we met, I uh, suggested to you some, some commentaries. That may scare some people. Uh, I've, I've brought tonight just a couple of expositions to talk about. Uh, these are guys that have, it, it, it's not difficult commentary material. But, uh, for instance, this is Warren Wearsby on the book of Joshua. And uh, this one is entitled, Be Strong. He has a little one of these books right here on each book of the Bible. Or you can buy, buy it in hardbound volumes, a bunch of these bound together. Uh, and basically what he's done, like if you were to read Joshua 1 and then you open up to where he's made comments on Joshua 1, it's not some kind of complicated commentary material. It would be like you sitting down with somebody in your Sunday school class and saying, okay, next week bring your summary of Joshua chapter 1. And we're going to read it to the class. That's kind of like what he's done in here. Uh, very good expositions. Not hard to understand. He just sort of gives you a, a summary of each chapter. Like I say, this is the book of Joshua. Whatever book of, of his you buy. It's on a lay level. It's not a scholarly level. Uh, but it's somebody who does have scholarly skills, but yet he's writing as a layperson in just a quick summary fashion. And so you can read what he does with each summary of each chapter. And you'd be amazed at the insights you'd glean from that. Okay? Uh, Warren Wearsby, he spells uh, his last name W-I-E. E-R-S-B-E. W-I-E-R-S-B-E. Somebody else who's done some great expositions on books of the Bible, James Montgomery Boyce. 
James Montgomery Boyce, he pastored 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia uh, before his death. He died of liver cancer at like age 62, probably 10, 12 years ago. Excellent expositions. Here again, it, it's not complicated commentary. You know, when you hear commentary, that might scare you to death. These are just simple explanations. In fact, Boyce's is actual sermons that he's preached. Uh, just put in print form. Exposition. Somebody else who has done the same is uh, John MacArthur on each, each book in the New Testament. Uh, he'll, he'll get into a little more detail on words and what it means in the Greek, the type form of the word, the tense and so forth. He'll do a little bit of that. But again, it's basically just expositions. It's his sermons put to print. So all, all three of these are expositions as opposed to being a commentary, a scholarly academic commentary, as opposed to that, all of these guys are pastors who basically their sermons have been transcribed and put in book form. And uh, if you'll get something like that, it'll help your understanding as you read a chapter. Don't let this be a substitute for your own observations first. But again, very easy things that uh, you, can, you can read that will help your understanding. Now, just kind of quickly moving along from uh, kind of building on last week a little bit, getting the big picture. Uh, last week, we, you know, we started looking. I had y'all look at a verse. What was that verse? Acts 1-8. And just kind of try your observation skills. And I think you did pretty good at that, right? Uh, the skills you displayed there, now transfer those skills when you read a book of the Bible. When you read a chapter. When you read a pericope. What's a pericope? A unit of thought. Uh, one unit of thought. Like in James 1, beginning in verse 2 and going down through like verse 11. James is talking about trials. Before in verse 12, he starts talking about temptations. So that one paragraph on trials from James 1, 2 down through 11, that would be one paragraph or pericope. Same thing, one unit of thought. So again, what you did last week with one verse in your Bible study, in your Bible reading, uh, like you did with Acts 1, 8, as you read down through James 1, 2 through 11, just making notes, all the different observations, who, what, when, where, how, from, from those verses in that paragraph. Go paragraph by paragraph. And uh, so it, it, what you did with the one verse, just in, enlarge uh, that out. And what you're trying to do is to see, just helping yourself 
get better at seeing what the text says. Because that's what we're interested in. What does the text say? I'm going to talk a little bit later about our presuppositions and how that can be bad. If you come to a text and you think you've already got figured out what that passage says and you've not even done the legwork of observation. But just training yourself to see. You know, we're not always good at seeing, are we? Uh, we're kind of like the story of a scientist uh, and a flea. Maybe you've heard this. Just kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing. A scientist was using the inductive method to observe the characteristics of a flea. Plucking a leg off the flea, he ordered, jump. And the flea jumped. Taking another leg off, he said, jump, and nudged it. And it jumped again. He continued this process until he took off the sixth and final leg on the flea. Now, each leg he took off, it became more difficult for it to jump. But now, by this time, it wouldn't jump at all. He'd taken off all the legs. And he was nudging it, saying, jump. It just stayed there motionless. He made the final observation in his notebook. When you remove the legs from a flea, it loses its sense of hearing. <laughs> I'd say that guy was not very good at observation, was he? <laughs> now, again, let's just review here a little bit, kind of building on last week. I, I'd mentioned to you, complete a cursory observation read through the book in one sitting if possible record your results uh, what were your first impressions of the book uh, what what do you learn about the author who's the intended audience is it believers non-believers Jews Gentiles what's their situation what's the atmosphere of the book what type of literature is it just basic things uh, in, in reading a document. Uh, what are some key words? What general subjects are covered in the book? What historical, religious, or cultural references can you find? What's the author's purpose or emphasis? What's the main theme of the book? No different than if you're reading a newspaper article or now we don't use newspapers. We go online, right? We read an article online. When you read that article online and it's talking about in such and such city, somebody robbed this person and the police chased them for three weeks and they got in a shootout with the police. Police finally captured them. You're just reading down through the article and you're kind of putting the pieces together the movement of the text and you know the bad guy the good guys what do the same thing with the Bible text again the same skills that you use in reading anything else same thing here you're reading a document 
uh, you know, what type of literature is it? Historical? Biographical? Is it wisdom literature? Is it something didactic like the book of James? Didactic is heavy teaching. Uh, is it an, an epistle like Paul writing to Timothy? Uh, just basic things like that. And just writing down your observations. Writing it down so when you pick up tomorrow where you left off today, you've got some of that recorded in a notebook. Hey, have a different notebook for every book of the Bible you're reading through. And just, again, read it. Read it in a translation like this and then go back through another type translation and just record some of your observations. What are you trying to do? See what the text says. Um, very, very simple. Nothing complicated about this. Uh, I'd mentioned create an observation page or pages for each chapter of the Bible or a passage of the Bible or a verse, depending on what you're studying. I think I gave you in your notes, don't you have a little example of that? Observation worksheet on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Do you have that? Okay. Uh, so, you know, as you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, give that chapter, after you've read through it and reread through it, give it a title. Is there something in that chapter that seems like a key verse to you? Uh, these are your observations. Okay? Uh, what do I see in that chapter? Again, who, what, when, where, how? Uh, things of that nature. If it's a large narrative section, uh, what are some principles I can glean from this? You know, David going out to meet Goliath. Uh, there are giants we face too. Uh, David faced his in the strength of the Lord. He displayed great courage and faith instead of fear. Have I turned my giants over to the Lord or am I living in fear? Uh, do an observation page of the, of the chapter or of the narrative that you're working on. Folks, when you start breaking things down like this, it's going to be amazing how that book comes into focus. What's the old saying about how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Okay? Take a book of the Bible that way. And after you've read it, first of all, to get the overall feel of it, then you go back through a chapter at a time. You're just making observations as you go. One bite at a time. One chapter at a time, one passage at a time, one narrative at a time. Uh, it, it may seem overwhelming, but again, when you do it this way, and you just discipline yourself to go through the book that way, you get to the end and then look back through all your notes, you're going to be amazed at how much better you understand the text. You know, I mentioned to you what, now this, this is something for teachers more than just typical readers. I think I've given you, did I give you 1 Peter chapter 5? Okay. You know, what I'll do, because 
something like the NAS is much more of a literal word for word. Again, what have we been saying? There is no such thing as purely word for word translation. Because parent language and receptor language, the vocabularies are different in two languages. What, what might be one word in one language may take a phrase in another language. So anyway, but even with that said, something like the New American Standard would probably the, be the most word for word. What I'll do is, is I'll go through that. Like I've given you an example of 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. And uh, on my computer, I'll, I'll just isolate all the independent clauses. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Uh, your adversary, the devil, prowls around, but resist him firm in your faith. The God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's seven main clauses down through that text. There's a lot of words, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of words. But time you pull the main clauses out from the dependent clauses, there's seven key thoughts. And so if you're teaching, you know, uh, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. You might group those three together and, and say the, those three, your outline point number one, the attitude of the believer, right? The attitude of the believer, humility, sober spirit, alertness. Point number two, uh, your adversary prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion, but resist him, our enemy, and what to do about him. And then number three, uh, the believer can rely on God for God's strength and help. You got your three-point outline based off your main clauses. So teachers... You know, the teachers in the group and you understand parts of speech and main clauses and dependent clauses. I would encourage you to break a passage down that way. Does that make sense? You rem remember in English class just isolating out main clauses? You with me? Again, this is, I'm not trying to be complicated. I hope I'm not being and, and you'll see what I've done with dependent clauses, therefore humble, like I've, things that modify humble, I've, I've dropped down below that word and in, indented three, uh, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humble, how? By casting all your anxiety upon him. Why casting? Because he cares for you. Just, just hanging dependent clauses with the words in the main clause that they modify. So that's just something I will do to help see a text. The main clauses, the main flow of the text. Just go back to your basic English classes. Main clauses. And reading down through a text and isolating those. And teachers building your outlines off of those main clauses. Does that... Does that sound difficult? Yeah? Oh, yeah, okay. Well, 
again, if this is for something, if, if that comes kind of naturally or easily to you to do that, then it, if not, just go back to just the other observations we talked about a moment ago. Uh, you know, charting the book, we talked about that. A lot of people love to, I don't do a lot of this, a lot of people do, uh, because a chart, I've given you a couple of examples, uh, somebody can fill out a chart and it helps them to see. They, they get kind of a snapshot. And you don't even have to do a whole chapter. Uh, turn, turn to where there's sections of the book. Uh, Mark 4, 35 to 5, 4. Dealing with Jesus' miracles. You know, a chart, uh, the miracle, stealing of the storm, the realm, Physical, people, disciples, and Jesus. The means, how did he do it? Just speaks. The results, a great calm. Uh, faith, no faith, only fear. Uh, the demoniac, mental realm, uh, people, Jesus, man, townspeople. He speaks. The results, the man became, he was normal, sitting clothed and in his right mind. Uh, and recognition he wanted to follow Jesus going through all the miracles of Jesus and just doing a chart like that uh, who were the people involved what did Jesus do in order to do the miracle what was the effect it had on the person what was the effect it had on those around the person uh, if you're looking at Mark 4 and dealing with the different kinds of soils list out the different kinds. How are they described? How does each one, what's said about how each one, the growth takes place in that? Uh, did any of them sh sh express hindrances and what were the results? So it might not, might not even be a, whole cha a chart on a whole chapter. It might just be you're reading through a section of the Gospels where it's miracle after miracle after miracle. And so you just decide to do a chart. And again, on these charts, just do it to where it helps you. Your chart might be different than somebody else. Don't worry about that. Have I done it right? You know, if you've done it and it helps you see the individual components of those miracles and the effect it had on the person and the crowd and, and what Jesus was calling on the person to do. You get done with that and it just kind of helps you see all those miracles together in context. So, does that make sense? So again, you can, you can break charts down to little just individual elements of the text if you don't want to do a whole chapter at, at one time. Just some element within that chapter. Um, and, I, and I mention that because of the number of people that seem to like to do charts because, again, when they, when they do that chart and they hold the page up and look at it, they just kind of see how everything fits together. Uh, but again, if you, if, if you don't like that, at least go back to the observation page. And for each chapter, be that investigative reporter. Who, what, when, 
where, how, recording all that down, making notes. You say, well, that sounds like a lot of work. It's, it's not hard. It's not difficult. Yeah, it takes some discipline and time. But you're just trying to understand Scripture better, to become a better reader that you see things. Instead of just quickly reading over something, and if somebody asks you five minutes later what it was you read, and you say, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but if you'll just take time to do that, it'll stick with you. And writing down your observations. Somebody once commented that when you write down something, your observations, it's the equivalent of just simply reading over it 11 times. Just writing it down. Does that make sense, just writing down observations? You have questions about that? Is Again, I want it to be practical. I don't want to... I'm not, being, not trying to be academic in this, just trying to give you some suggestions of, of how you can be a better student and get more out of your Bible. Pretty simple. Does anybody, maybe you have a different approach you take. Please tell us. Speak up. Yes. Right. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. That's why I say do your own first. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, you're not going to like this answer. I say do all of the above. And here's what I mean by that. If I'm studying a passage myself, go through it first of all. Pray about it. Get everything you can out of it. And then just to check yourself that you're not going off in some crazy direction the writer didn't name. Then you go back through the commentaries and, and you can kind of say, oh yeah, this relates to what I saw over here and connect that and write down. And then an, an exposition is just going to be an example. Okay, here's somebody who's studied that same text and you would assume or hope they've gone through the more critical aspects with commentaries. How did they come out with it? How did they expound it and treat it? So you got your own observations, double-checking them with your secondary sources, your commentaries, and then seeing how somebody else ended up their final result on that. So do all three. Your part, the commentators, and then somebody that's done an exposition. You what? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Sure. Uh huh. Sure. Okay. 
right? Sure. Okay. But I think if you've done yours first, then you're just seeing how somebody else, somebody else did it. And you're not do, if you do theirs first, you're going to be you're going it's going to be stuck in your mind how they did it. And yours is going to turn out like theirs. And so do yours first. Do your work first. Your observation work first. Double check your work with commentaries and then see how somebody else who does an exposition has done. Do all three. You say, sounds like a lot of work. But I'm just saying, if you really want to understand the Bible better, it, you know, I used golf, uh, how much people will spend on resources for golf. Not talking about resources, but think about time commitment. You go out and play 18 holes of golf one day. How much time are you looking at? minimum four hours right you ladies that might sit down like to crochet or knit you might do that for a couple of hours folks we're talking about spending more time in God's word that shouldn't seem so drastic to us this is the sovereign God of the universe who's written to us uh, I need to do more than just, you know, cut out my light at night. Say, uh oh, didn't do my Bible reading. Cut on the light, sit up in the bed. Three, two or three chapters, close it, did it. Cut out the light, you know. It deserves more than that. Okay? Um, anybody else have a system that works for you other than what I'm saying here? Lori? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Anybody else? I want to, if you've got a just a crackerjack way that might help other people. That is a great thing he's suggesting, folks. Uh, meditate when you're reading a passage to take time to 
think back through it and meditate on it through the course of the day. And, you know, have, have a notepad handy or your laptop or iPad or whatever. And just as things come to mind, you're meditating on Jot those things down. But meditate because oftentimes it's been said we read too much and reflect too little. We might just be concerned about reading a big mass of material, but have we really let it sink in? Have we ingested it? And to do that, you've got to meditate on it. And you meditate on it and pray about it through the day. And it's, it's amazing the insights you can glean from that. So, you know, meditation really comes into that observation process, doesn't it? You've, 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 when it's in front of you, you've observed, made notes. But as you're meditating on it through the day, you'll think, Aha, I didn't think about that. And write that down. So don't, don't discount that, okay? Uh, well, what I want to do is uh, kind of move off of that and just in the interest of trying to cover a lot of material in six weeks, uh, let's talk about, we're going to get into interpretation tonight. Observation first, interpretation. You know, what did David pray? King David? Give me understanding and I will keep your law and obey it with all of my heart. Uh, folks, acting on what God has said assumes that you understand what he said. What Lori was talking about, application. And that's why the second major step in Bible study is the step of interpretation. What does it mean? Remember in Acts chapter 8, the passage about Philip going out into the desert to meet up with the Ethiopian eunuch? The Ethiopian eunuch had been up to Jerusalem. While he was there, he bought a scroll of the book of Isaiah. And yet, he needed help understanding that. When Philip was told by God to go join himself to the chariot that man was in, he was providentially reading from Isaiah 53. You know, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what did he ask? You remember what he asked? Who's the him? Who's he talking about? Himself? Or somebody else? And Philip went, took the text from there to tell him about how it pointed to Jesus. And so in a real sense, if you think about it, because that man got saved out there in the desert, he went on back to Ethiopia. Uh, the step, you could say in some ways, the step of interpretation helped to open Africa up to the gospel. Now, what do we mean by interpretation? What do we mean? Well, every book of the Bible has a message. And that message can be understood. Okay? 
uh, the Bible is not just some big, huge book of riddles, and there's no way anybody can ever find out what the riddle is. That's not what God has done. God's not playing some hide-and-seek game. He's more interested in you knowing what it says than you are. And he'll help you. Uh, how is it that two different students can look at the same verse and come up with two entirely different meanings? In fact, sometimes people come up with opposite meanings. Can they both be right? No, they can't. Uh, but unfortunately, many people today have decided that the laws of logic don't apply to Scripture. And to them, it doesn't matter uh, whether you see the text as blue and I see it as green. For them, everything is purely subjective. But if we're doing solid interpretation, hermeneutics is what we're talking about. We'll come up with a basic meaning of the text. Now, now folks, there may be many applications to a text. Hear me, hear me on this. Many applications on a text. But there's not three, four, five meanings. If you're sitting around in Sunday school and somebody says, well, what do you think this means? Somebody says, well, I think it means this. Somebody else says, well, I think it means this. And somebody else says, well, I think it means this. And all those things clearly contradict one another. Somebody's wrong and somebody's right. <laughs> or maybe everybody's wrong. Now, when, you've, when the class figures out what the text means, then you might say, oh boy, here's how it applies in my life. You might say, hmm, here's how that applies in my life. Here's how that applies in my life. Different applications. But the text says what it says and means what it means. Okay? And our job is to get at what it's meaning. Because again, it's, it's not to be just a free-for-all. One text and a class of 25 people say it means 25 different things. No, it means one thing. So we need to study the text. Hopefully you've got a teacher studying the text who can help you what it means. And then many different applications and so uh, interpretation is sort you could think of it as a recreation process we're attempting to stand in the author's shoes and recreate his experience to think as he thought to feel as he felt to decide as he decided we're asking what did this mean to him what did he intend to communicate before we ever ask, what does it mean to me? And don't miss this. Interpretation always begins with good observation. That's why we covered observation first. Again, who is the writer? Who is the audience? What was their culture like? What were their 
customs. What do I see in the text? Don't move on to trying to interpret the text until you, first of all, have spent time with good observation. Observation is like doing the excavation work. Interpretation is then like erecting something. Observation is like the foundation. Buildings are always determined by their foundations. The more substantial the foundation, the more substantial the structure. The quality of your observation will always depend on the quality of your observation. The quality of your interpretation will always depend on the quality of your observation. Okay? Amen? Let me, let me back up though. Did I skip something? No. Observation is never an end in and of itself. You're observing so you can interpret, so you can understand what it's saying and then apply. Okay? Now, <clears throat> why do we even need interpretation? Why do we even have to think about interpretation? Well, time, distance, and culture has separated us from King David or Moses or Paul. And there are language barriers and cultural barriers and communication barriers. The language barriers, here's where reading that passage in a couple of different translations can help immensely. You know, you can, you can read different translations of a text and in a, in a sense if you're reading from four or five different translations those different translations can almost become like a commentary on the text to you they're not they're not commentaries but they can become like commentaries because you'll see how the different translators interpreted a, a word or a phrase differently and it kind of helps you to understand the meaning of that passage then, you know, cultural barriers. This is where your commentaries, your secondary sources can help because they can help you understand some of the customs of the day that you may not readily understand. And communication barriers, you know, we've got to deal with that. There's an encoding and decoding process, right? In communication, encoding what I'm saying and decoding what you're hearing that I'm saying. You know what I'm talking about? Take a husband and wife, for example. Your wife may have asked you to fill her car up with gas, and let's say you forgot. So on her way to church tonight, you said, Honey, you told your wife, while you're out, you need to go ahead and get some gas. Now, what did you mean? You meant, and this is what you encoded, Honey, I forgot. I'm sorry, I just forgot. So you'll need to get it on your way to church tonight. But what did she maybe hear? What did she decode? She might have decoded, I hope not, but she might have 
heard that she needs to get it herself. You didn't have time to do it anyway, and you didn't want to do it. <laughs> right? Encoding and decoding. That's communication barriers. And there can be those barriers across centuries. Uh, what are some hazards to avoid? Misreading the text. And if we do this, the problem is not with the Word of God, it's with my understanding of the text. And if I misread the text, I'll misinterpret the text. For example, in 1 Peter 6.10, the Bible says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. How could somebody misread that text? If, if the text says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, how have some people misread that text? Money is the root of all evil. Right? Is that what it says? No. It's the love of it. Another example, when King David said, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. If I simply read, he will give me the desires of my heart. I'm in serious trouble because I've missed the first part. The first part is, if I delight myself in him, to where he's just changed my whole way of thinking, to where... What I desire is what he desires. If I delight in him, he'll give me the desires of my heart. It doesn't just say he's going to give me the desires of my heart. You've got to pick up on the first part first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. And that's why last week, remember, one of the last things I said is pay attention to those time stamps in passages like, like that. If, then, or finally, or therefore. What, pay attention to things like that. Uh, misreading the text is a hazard. Distorting the text is a hazard. The cults are famous for this. They will completely distort a text. In fact, they may even... I'll give the Jehovah Witnesses as an example. Uh, in Colossians 2, where Paul is saying that Jesus is very God of very God. Well, that's not going to work in Jehovah Witness theology because they believe that there was a time that Jesus was not. He was created. That's not Bible. Bible is he's eternal. He wasn't a created being. But they got a problem with a particular Greek word, thetos, that he's very God of very God. And so in their New World translation, which is a very poor translation, they take that word out and they plug a word in. It looks like the same word, but it has an extra letter in the middle. What we would call an I or 
Iota. Now they've changed Thetos from very God of very God to just a man who had some godlike qualities. What have they done? Without any justification for doing so in manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, they've corrupted the text. They took out a word, plugged in another word that would fit their theology. So distorting the text. Again, cults are, are famous for that. You can't just change a Bible verse around to suit your fancy, to make it say what you want it to say. Uh, some people like to over-spiritualize the text. Uh, somebody might be talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and they'll say, well, what the writer meant to say is, not that a man rose from the dead, but, you know, spiritually, he, it kind of happened. He rose from the dead. And so they say the Bible means by resurrection you're, you're simply going to have new life in Christ. Well, you've got to understand that no, the text is saying that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. It's not just talking about a spiritual concept. He bodily rose from the dead. And it gives us the promise the same thing's going to happen to us. Uh, another hazard is subjectivism. Many Christians are nothing more than mystics when they come to their Bible reading. They don't want to put any serious study into it. They just kind of want to subjectively read their Bible to, to just kind of see how something might kind of strike them. And when they come across a verse like that that just strikes them in a certain way, they grab a hold of that without considering context or anything else. Somebody has said it well. They, they just want the liver quiver, the feel-good moment. Uh, here's one I mentioned earlier, presuppositions, where you maybe turn the page in your Bible and it's time to read the next chapter. Oh, I don't need to read that. I, I know what that passage is saying. I don't even need to study it. Well, in your previous studies, you may have totally missed what that passage is saying or missed a lot of it. Uh, so don't just have presuppositions uh, where you get lazy and don't even study. Uh, Insights on interpretation. Ask yourself, what type of literature is this? What are we talking about here? Questions of genre. Uh, is this a historical narrative describing God's dealings with his people? Uh, or is it wisdom literature, poetry, proverbs, pithy sayings? Is it a parable? If I'm studying a parable, I see that it's a story Jesus told to make a point. Usually there'll be one main point, right? It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Or is it prophecy or is it apocalyptic? If it's apocalyptic literature, like portions of Daniel or Re Revelation, then you can expect that there's going to be tons of symbols in that. Is it an epistle? An epistle is a letter to a person or a congregation. Is it didactic? 
heavy teaching like James. Uh, what is the context? Remember the old spiritual. The knee bones connected to the thigh bone. The thigh bones connected to the hip bone. The hip bones connected to the tailbone. Now hear the word of the Lord. Have you ever heard that spiritual? Oh yeah. yeah. Context is important. It was Dr. Adrian Rogers who used to say that a text without a context is but a pretext. By context, what do I mean? You've got to pay attention to what comes before and after that passage. Right? Okay. And what is that passage? Second Chronicles. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, somebody made a joke one time where, you know, not considering context, uh, they read one passage where it said, Judas went out and hung himself. Turned to a different passage where Jesus' instructions to the disciples was, you go and do likewise. And they put those two stories together. Obviously, they didn't pay attention to context. Uh, take advantage of consultation. Uh, consultation involves the use of secondary resources. Again, like I pointed out to James, that comes after your own studies. Uh, we, we don't... Some people, for some reason, I don't understand this, they're against commentaries. And I don't understand that because in the church, we know that one of the spiritual gifts God has given to people in the church is what? Teaching, right? A commentator may be somebody that God has called to teach. They've gone away to school to learn the original language, the culture, uh, and then they've put that down in writing on a book. A comment. They're, they're basically a teacher in a book. You know, you might value coming to church and going to Sunday school. You have a teacher who helps you understand. A commentary is a teacher in a book. Uh, they shouldn't replace your own studies, but they can, they can help you. Uh, if you've come to a conclusion that no commentator comes to, it might be a clue to you. You're way off on your interpretation. Uh, another thing, Scripture will never contradict Scripture. <clears throat> scripture will never contradict Scripture. Uh, Probably there's all sorts of examples you can think of on this. Uh, let me just give you a quick example when it comes, you know, church offices, deacons. Um, a deacon to be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. Some interpreters in the past even went so far as to say, if a man's wife 
died. And two, three, four, five, ten years later, he remarried. He couldn't be a deacon in the church because he was no longer a one-woman man. But what's the problem with that? Romans 7 says, gives the, gives the illustration of death occurring. And the spouse who's living can remarry and they're not considered an adulterer or anything like that. So here's a case where if you just let Scripture help you interpret Scripture, it'll help you to understand what Paul means there about a one-woman man. He's not talking about somebody who became a widower and remarried at some later point. Such a man is more than qualified to be a deacon if he has the other qualifications. So using Scripture to help interpret Scripture. And that's why cross-references in your Bible can be good. Read those cross-references because those cross-references will point you to other passages that help interpret that passage. Uh, always seek the full counsel of the Word of God. You know, if you're studying sanctification, for example, uh, get your exhaustive concordance out and find everywhere in the Bible, the Bible talks about sanctification. Don't just build a doctrine off of one solitary verse. Un unless it's obvious that you shouldn't, always interpret Scripture literally. Somebody has put it, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Again, the Bible's not a book of mysticism. Uh, as you read, read the Bible in its normal, natural sense as you would read anything else. Don't go looking for some type of hidden, secret meaning in the text that you've got to try to uncover to see what it really might mean. Now, let me give you an example of when, when that happened in church history. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, what do you see in that as you read that just in its normal, natural sense? We're to love our neighbor and anybody in need is our neighbor. And we need to reach out and love them with tangible needs. Well, in church history, some of the early church fathers they read all kinds of things into that, that uh, uh, the Good Samaritan was Jesus, and when he poured oil into the man's wounds, he was actually pouring in justification by faith alone, and when he took the man to the inn, the inn was the church, and the innkeeper he turned the man over to was the Apostle Paul. You see the problem in that? Uh, you go with that approach and you can start making any passage say anything you want it to say. Uh, I always laugh when I read in the media something like Southern Baptist, um, you know, 
They're fundamentalists because they believe that you're supposed to read the Bible literally. Well, yeah, we do. What's strange about that? Uh, now, you know if you're reading something that's to be taken at figurative. When Jesus said that he was the door into the sheepfold, what do he mean? He's the way in. The door or the gate. Did he mean that he was a plank of oak or maple or cedar wood? Did he mean that? No. A door is a way in. A, a figure of speaking. Uh, I know it's getting late. I'm wanting to get through a few more things before we close out. Never use an obscure passage to contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. Some people will take a passage like Hebrews 6 that might appear on the surface to teach you can lose your salvation. But then we have other clear passages. Romans 8, 1 Peter 1, John 10. Uh, Ephesians 1 teach very clearly that our salvation is secure. You use clear passages to help shed meaning on obscure passages. You don't, you don't take obscure, hard-to-understand passages that people have grappled with interpretation through the centuries and use those obscure passages to try to shed light on clear passages. Uh, another principle in interpretation, allow the Old Testament to be clarified by the New the New Testament may make an Old Testament practice obsolete. Do we still bring goats and bulls to church to sacrifice? No. Why? Because as the New Testament makes clear, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that those old ones pointed to. Um. Uh, so if you're studying an Old Testament passage uh, about a particular subject and a New Testament passage uh, exists about the same subject, the New Testament passage has the last say on that. Um, I'm going to stop there. We'll pick up next week with some other things that have to do with uh, interpretation. Because I'm supposed to end, my drop dead time of ending is supposed to be 6.15. And we're at 6.15. Yes. Uh, so anyway, uh, I hope that starts getting the juices flowing on interpretation. We'll pick up, we'll finish this out next week. Because we're going to talk about some... Good stuff next week, you know. You have euphemisms and hi hyperbole and idioms and metaphors and paradoxes and rhetorical questions and similes and things of that nature in, in the Bible. We've got to consider all these things when we're talking about interpretation, okay? So we'll, uh, 
we'll pick up on that next week. Uh, Bill Nolan, would you close this in prayer, please, sir?